0: So on this Sunday we are uh, we're actually going to end our series in First Peter. We're coming right at the end of the letter Peter wrote to this group of Christians suffering in the Roman world. We have three verses left, and in those three verses, I think there is an Easter message. So let's go find it, it's like an Easter egg hunt. Here we go. First Peter chapter five. We read the last three verses of the letter. Sorry, verse twelve. With the help of Silas, whom I regard as a faithful brother, I have written to you briefly, encouraging you and testifying that this is the true grace of God, stand fast in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son Mark. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ. There's an Easter message right there. Before we unpack it, let's just take a look at the just the an overview of the passage, just so we can get the context of what exactly is happening big picture in these last three verses. So right off the bat, we see this name introduced. We haven't seen a lot of names introduced in the book at this point. But right here at the front, we'll highlight this. With the help of Silas, I have written to you briefly. Now, this is the New International Version. So it, it, it looks like... Peter had some help writing the letter because the way the NIV translates it is literally "I with the help of Silas. But the original actually doesn't, doesn't explain that much. It just simply says that here, Silas with me. And the NIV translators have taken that to mean that Silas has helped, write, written, uh, helped to write this letter uh, there's a long argument about exactly who wrote the letter, and most conservative scholars think Peter wrote it by himself. And Silas is not a helper in writing the letter, but rather the one who is going to deliver the letter, which makes more sense because of what comes next. So when you send a letter with somebody, you try to commend that person, like, hey, this is a good person. You should trust them as they bring you this letter from me, which is why he writes this Next, whom I regard as a faithful brother. So the reason that Peter mentions Silas is to note the guy who's giving you this letter, who's taking it around to all these different churches, he is faithful. He's been with me. I consider him a brother. So right out of the gate, we know Peter's had some people with him. That's the thing I want us to take away. That in the midst of his suffering, Peter himself going through his own struggles... He's got people around him. And one of those is this guy named Silas. And Silas shows up all over the book of Acts. In the book of Acts, he's a traveling companion, especially for Luke and the Apostle Paul. So this is a guy that was well known in the early church. And he is with Peter in this moment as he's writing. And most likely, he's delivering this letter that we've been studying for 10 years. Uh, okay, that fell. That's all right. I, I'll give it one more shot later. And if it just falls, then. Yeah, it's just to be all business, y'all. Okay, all business. All right. So, so Peter, uh, Silas isn't the only one with Peter. There's some other people with them, but it's really coded language. It's right here where he says this. When he says, "She who is in Babylon chosen together with you," and then obviously this reference to Mark. This is John Mark, but it's this. She in Babylon. Who's the she in Babylon? What's like? What is this a reference to? And is he in Babylon? Well, this is here Peter is pulling from imagery from the language of the Old Testament. Babylon's the place where Israel was sent into exile, the epicenter of evil. And now Peter is in an epicenter of evil and power in the Roman world, which is the city of Rome. Here's the way one scholar explains this coded reference to those who are with him. We'll take a look here. Go to that next slide. It is best to understand Babylon as a reference to Rome, just as in the Old Testament Babylon was the center of worldly power and opposition to God's people. So in the time of the New Testament, Rome is the earthly center of a worldwide system of government and life which opposes the gospel. So Peter's writing in in the epicenter, in the center of ungodliness, in the center of, of power in the world. And he's writing to encourage other Christians who are in places that oppose the gospel. This isn't a guy just sitting off somewhere in an ivory tower writing some encouragement. He's a guy who's in the midst of his own struggles. And he's got other Christians in, in Rome who are with him. And he even has Mark. And just fun fact here. Mark is the one who we believe, down through the centuries of Christian tradition, is the one that wrote the Gospel according to Mark. Mark is the one who was a companion of Peter. And he bases his Gospel, the one we've studied for quite a while, a couple years ago, that Gospel was based on the preaching of Peter. And here's this reference that John Mark was with Peter, even here while he's in Rome. So that's the context. The context is, Peter's with other people. He's getting ready to send the letter. But what's the purpose of the letter? It's this. He says it really clearly for us. Here it is. We'll highlight it. He's writing to encouraging you, testifying that this is the true grace of God. Stand fast in it. I think that's where the Easter sermon is right there. After telling us about who's with with him, who's sending the letter who sends greetings, how to greet one another, right there embedded in in, in this last part of the letter is an Easter sermon. And I think it's in that phrase, the grace, the true grace of God. That thing you need to stand in, the true grace of God. I think that's where Easter is. Let me explain it this way. The true grace of God includes Not only the death of Jesus for sin, which I think all of us would say, yeah, that's definitely the cross. But the true grace of God also includes the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection is fundamental to everything Peter writes in this letter. And he refers to it multiple times, both implicitly, explicitly, and implicitly. You know, there's a lot of things you could preach on on an Easter Sunday. Go read some of the accounts from the Gospels come out, of, come out of one of Paul's letters. But it was right here that I saw the Easter message. Because when Peter says the true grace of God for him, that's not just the death of Christ on the cross, it's the resurrection. And we know it because Peter references the resurrection in this letter multiple times. Explicitly, implicitly. And I thought, what better way to end the book this letter, this study of the letter of First Peter, than by doing an overview of where we've been, but track the theme of the resurrection. It's all over the place. All this great counsel, this practical advice on how to live in the midst of struggles and trials and persecutions, all of it is rooted on Jesus' resurrection. Like it's ready-made for Easter Sunday. He launches the book. Look at what he does. Chapter 1, verse 3 and 4. I mean, we're right out of the gate. And he can't he can't but help it. talk about the resurrection. Here it is. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He's given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. I think all of us want an inheritance. Like I'm just leaving it there, like we all want an inheritance. But we probably want one that will never fade, never spoil. And here Peter, Peter launches into the letter to encourage them, stay the course, I know you're going through a bunch of junk. There are other English words we could use, we'll just say junk. That's how bad this is. And yet what does he do? He tells them who, you, who they are. You're a people who by God's mercy, you have been born into a living hope. And you have an inheritance, don't you worry, it's never going to go away. No one can ever snatch it. No one ever no and it's never going to fade, it's never going to spoil. This is this is yours. And you know how you have it? You have it because Jesus came back from the dead. The only reason you have an inheritance, great riches that will never spoil, because Jesus' body didn't spoil. You have great a great inheritance. In a living hope that will help you in everyday life. Because Jesus never faded. He came back to life. Because he came back to life, you have something that's going to last. And he launches the letter with hope. And golly, in a world that feels very chaotic. Like it ain't going nowhere. Or it is going somewhere. You need some hope. And Peter launches with the hope of the resurrection. You know you have this because this happened to Christ. He came back to life. Alright, so just a few verses later, verses 18-19, through 19, here's what he said. 18-21, through 21, he says, For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life painted down to you from your ancestors. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, You believe in God who raised Him from the dead and glorified Him. And so your faith and hope are in God. You ever feel like life's empty? You ever feel like it never brings any satisfaction? Well, you can be redeemed from an empty life because someone has bought your life with His blood. And you can actually come to Him and believe in Him because He's alive. This isn't just a matter of studying some dead guy and what he did long ago. You can believe in him right now. The reason you have someone to believe in is because he actually lives. And so Peter here roots their salvation, the fact that they're saved. Like, they can actually live a different kind of life. Like, they used to go to parties where people took off their clothes. Okay? But he talks about this later in the letter. Now, now they're faithful to their spouses. They used to go to places where they would indulge, throw up and indulge some more. Now they have self-control. They used to be in a place where they would get angry and gossip and be bitter. And sometimes they would murder each other. Now they are in a place where there is love and forgiveness. Literally, life changed because Christ lives. That's the root. That's the root of this declaration that they've been redeemed from an empty way of life. Because Jesus lives. It's his foundation. All right, we're all into chapter 2. He starts off this, again, telling them who they are. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now we've studied this passage, let's just summarize it. You can have a life that is meaningful with other people. People that look different than you, sound different than you, because we are being built up into something that is alive and vibrant. Why? Because we're coming to the one who is living. Interesting that this is referred to, Jesus is referred to here as a stone. A stone. Stable. Solid. He's not just... He's just not moving with the wind or or with the latest current events. This is the stone. He's the living stone. He's alive right now. And when you come to Him, you come alive too. And you become someone who can be stable. And you're part of a community that can be stable. The storms will come, but if you're part of something stable, you can hold on. living stone. You know why He's a living stone? Because He's alive. You don't come to dead things. You come to living things. The resurrection, again, foundational for Peter. This is the true grace of God. All right, chapter 3. Another longer passage. You just count it up with me. I'm, I'm counting three. I'm counting three times here. He's referring to the resurrection. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive in the spirit. Having been made alive, he went and made proclamation to the imprisoned spirits to those who were disobedient long ago when God waited patiently in the days of Noah while the ark was being built. In it, only a few people, eight in all, were saved through water. And this water symbolizes baptism. And it now saves you also. Now, not the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a clear conscience towards God. It saves you by the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven. Is at God's right hand with angels and authorities and powers in submission to him. Three times he refers to the resurrection. Explicitly referring to the resurrection. Life is literally different and you can bank on the fact that evil is going to be dealt with because... He is alive. Just in the days of Noah, when there was lots of evil and God dealt with the evil. Well, don't you worry because Jesus is alive. Jesus will deal with all the evil. Every persecutor against God's people. God's going to deal with them. And you can take that to the bank because he is alive. And you now get to participate in that life. Like you get to join up with it through the resurrection of Jesus. So, I mean, I'm just... Right here, four passages, right out the gate, explicitly referring to the resurrection. So this true grace of God, this true grace of God only has any meaning. Because that Jesus, that Jesus came back to life. When his lungs stopped working, three days later, oxygen filled them again. And because of that, everything changed. Now, there are a few implicit references to the resurrection here, and I really want to note these because it, it helps add a layer, a layer to uh, understanding the resurrection that I really want to at least pick up. All right. Now, before we go to the passages, let me just explain where I think, what I think the, the implicit references, uh how, how I'd summarize those. Here's the way I want to say it. The resurrection of Jesus is, for Peter, a signpost. That points ahead to the age to come. Throughout his letter, he reminds these Christians that the risen Christ will return and reveal his glory and restore all things. Reveal his glory and restore all things. Those are some themes that run through the letter. Now you know the way signposts works. You're driving, you're driving, you're driving. And then you see, you see a sign to where you're going and you know, huh, finally we're going to be there. Because the sign told you you're almost there. Signposts, signposts are not the thing. Okay? You, 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 the signpost points to the thing. And for Peter, the resurrection was a signpost that what started with Jesus will one day come in its fullness. There will be a day when what is perishable will be closed with the imperishable. What was what we used to call death will be no more. And it will be because of the victory of Jesus. It's this is massive signpost. So hallelujah. Yes. Where, why aren't you saying hallelujah? Why did choir guys say hallelujah? Okay. Um, so okay. Um, so, so um, let's take a look. Just, I'm just going to pick a couple passages. One about Jesus coming back, revealing his glory. And let's talk about one that, where he talks about things being restored. All of it because what started with Jesus, you can take it to the bank. It's coming for the world. Alright. right, First Peter chapter, um, I hope, did I have that passage up? Yep, didn't delete it out of the PowerPoint. Let's go on to the next one. There it is. There it is. Uh, Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. There is the true grace of God. It's coming. It's going to be revealed in its fullness. And it's going to be brought when Jesus returns. And how is Jesus returning? Like, How is that possible? Because He's alive. He's not like dead in a grave somewhere. And someday He's going to resurrect. And then all of a sudden overtake the world. No, He's alive right now with all power and dominion. And one day He's coming back. And when He comes back, grace will be revealed in a way we've never seen it. Can you imagine, though, what that says to a people that are suffering? They lost their job. Their kids are going hungry. Maybe they lost a spouse to persecution. Maybe they're being made fun of constantly. Maybe they've been kicked out of the guild. Think of all the ways that they may be suffering. Not only that, think of all the sickness in the ancient world that this community of believers would have been struggling with. Very similar to what we might struggle with. And here Peter says, don't you worry. You set your eyes on the day when all that grace is revealed in its fullness. It's coming, and it's going to be brought by Jesus because Jesus is alive. So, so, yes, tomorrow is really going to sink, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. And it's really not going to get any better, but don't you worry because there's a day. There's a day. You can guarantee it. Take it to the bank because Jesus started what he will finish. When he came back to life, something new invaded the world, and one day everybody will see it in its way glory. It will be the grace of God revealed at His coming. So that's hope. It's given hope. The resurrection implicitly is underneath all of that. And then this last one. We just read it last week. It's the first, it's few verses right before our last passage this morning. And the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ after you have suffered a little while will Himself restore you. And make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To Him be the power forever and ever. Amen. When is that restoration going to happen? Well, for a lot of people, it doesn't happen in this world. If you have lost a spouse, that spouse isn't coming back in this world. It's just not going to happen. That that, restoration is not going to happen. If you're sick, you may not get better. If your kids are far from Christ, I don't know way that's gonna, way that's gonna, how that's going to play out. But here's what we know. That for all of God's people, all things will be made right. And so it may not happen right here. And for some, it just doesn't. It doesn't always get better on this earth. But this earth is passing away. It wasn't meant to hold eternity. So God's going to make sure to wrap the perishable with the imperishable. And Peter says here at the end of the letter, you can take this to the bank. All things are going to be restored. And you're going to be established. You may not be fully established here. Because this a, is a, it's a sandy place, this world. But there's a rock. And things will be restored and you will be set firm. And it will be on the day that He returns. And all is made right. You know, throughout the Bible, we see glimpses of this moment. Maybe you know this famous passage from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Where he gives a vision of what's going to happen when all this takes place. It's one I read at most, uh, in, in most eulogies that I give. This passage right here. It's one of my favorites. 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-four through 57 This is Paul's way of saying what Peter just said. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up. In victory. Where, O death, is your victory? And where, O death, is your sting? Well, the sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is victory in Jesus. Not in a dead Jesus. There's no monument to Jesus. He's a living Jesus. And he's a living Jesus who will come back in all of his grace, and all of his power, and one day all things will be made right. And we know it because he came back to life. Now, if he didn't come back to life, all of us should be pitied. What are we doing here? Come on. There are more fun things to be doing. But if he came back to life, something fundamentally different entered the world. We're talking about a historical fact, and from that fact emerges meaning for your life and my life. All right, let's make some application. Now, I'm going to tell you, don't put it up yet. Just leave it right there. i got to set, you, set the stage. Every week, I study the passage, try to, try to go about explaining it in a way that makes sense. That's always the goal. And then try to make some application, like, what would this mean? What does this mean for my life? And I stick with it for a while. Man, this one really was a doozy. I think I rewrote this section five times road and roads. No, uh, no, that's not it. I don't even know what that means. like That's just too churchy. I don't even know what that means. Like, I'd write it, write it, write it, and I'd say, no, that's like too spiritual. like uh, 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 I mean, I just kept doing that over and over and over. I'm like, but what's the sim- most simple, like, like, what's the baseline for Easter? At least coming out of 1 Peter. And it's this. I got one application point for you. It's this. Let's put it up. Easter reminds me that Jesus is the center of the universe, not me. Because you know what kept going through my head as I was writing all of these drafts of this section? I just kept thinking, he lives, he lives, he lives. And then it hit me, you know who I'm not saying lives? Me! At no point am I saying, Jason lives. Like, that's not what we're here to celebrate. I mean, I know you're glad, George, that I am alive. I mean, I get that. I can see it. You see, he's radiating. But, 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 at no point was I ever saying, "I live." And if I did, it always was in the aftermath of me saying, "Jesus lives." So I thought, well, isn't that the point? That I'm not the center of the universe? And it just so happens this week, I thought I was at different points of the week. And there was a little more conflict in my home. And it was centered around me, thinking I was the center of the universe. We don't need to go into all this. But this might be where some of this came to the forefront for me. But here's the other thing about realizing on this day that it's all about Jesus and not about you. That he's the center of the universe. You're not the center of the universe. Is that you know what we're going to be doing one day when all this grace is revealed, when he returns and we're in the new creation and we're actually happy? Like, I mean, just constantly happy, full of joy, full of his glory. Like, this is what we were made for. It's going to be, I mean, it's just fun. Like, it actually will be fun. You know why all that's going to be, you know, what we're going to be doing and all of that? You know who's going to be the center of the universe one day? And all the grace and all the glory? Jesus, he's gonna be like, like he, he's the center of the universe right now, and he's gonna always be the center of the universe. And listen, I know what we're about to read is gonna sound very, um, very churchy. It's, it, these are words that are very hard for us to connect with because we don't use these words in everyday life. But I don't think that's because they're not real or they won't be true. I think it is a deficiency on our part. It is a lack. Of imagination on our part. It is our lack, our misunderstanding, not on his part. I think the language fits just right. It's not a problem of the language. It's a problem with my heart. So when you hear it, don't just think, that doesn't relate to our world. No, it really doesn't, because we haven't got there yet. Here's, here's what, what we're going to be doing forever and ever, which will actually be lot really, really joyful. Here it is. Revelation 5, 11-14, John writes, Then I looked, and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand, ten, uh, ten thousand times ten thousand, and they encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders in a loud voice they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive Power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. All those things we give our athletes today, by the way. It will be so much more in the new creation. And it will all go to Jesus. Then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in the thing. To him who sits on the throne and to the lamb. Be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever. Today we declare the world's not about me. He lives. And if I live, it's because he lives. Today's not about me. This week is really not about me. And forever and ever will not be about me. It will be about him. One thing we Americans need is to remember, the world doesn't revolve around me. Because Google is going to convince you it does. Facebook and Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, they're all trying to make sure you think the world revolves around you. YouTube is all about you. Tube. Sorry. Okay. I didn't know if it would work. I just gave it a shot. In our world, we are constantly saturated with commercials and advertisements and apps and TV shows that are, that are generated for me, myself, and I. And today we declare on Easter Sunday, where we say he is risen, he is risen indeed, that I am not the center of the universe. He is. And man, we need that message. All right. So when it came to a next step... So with all the struggle I had for this application, like what would I do with the next step? Oh, did I rewrite this section? And then I said, but what would be most simple? Well, this would be. Here it is. Say out loud throughout the week, I am not the center of the universe. He is. If you're looking for deep meaning, it's not there. If you're saying, but what do you mean by loud? Out loud. Out loud. Something happens when you hear your own voice. So this week, at random points, simply say, I am not the center of the universe. He is. Hear yourself tell yourself, you're not the center of the universe. You may be surprised how much good that does you. I need that. I was saying it as I was writing a sermon. How I came to this next step is I finally realized, and said out loud as I'm typing, Jason, you are not the center of the universe. Wait, that worked. Okay, maybe we should all do that. Yes, your next step. say out loud. This week, throughout the week, I am not the center of the universe. He is. And if you want to add just one more layer, you could even say, because he lives. Let me pray. Father, thank you for your word Thank you for bringing Jesus back to life. In this morning, in the most simple way, we acknowledge on this Easter Sunday that your Son, Jesus, will be at the center of the universe forever and ever, and he is today. It is all to your glory and praise. So help us out. Help us out to make that reality in our lives by the power of the Spirit. And we pray that in the name who is the center of the whole world.